it should be something that we realize that our attendance and our participation in a local congregation is something that's actually very valuable. So seeing Christ's attentiveness to churches, seeing his concern about their health or lack of health, because I mean, statistically, healthy churches seem to be kind of rare if we look at these two chapters. Since they're rare, and since Jesus notices them and commends them when they get it right, then let's put effort into doing the sort of things that Christ put effort into and also that he commends. So healthy churches are valuable to Jesus, and so it should be valuable to us. In this episode of Theology for the People, I speak with Mike Neglia. Mike is the pastor of Calvary Cork in Cork City, Ireland. He also leads the Expositors Collective initiative through Calvary Global Network, which trains preachers and teachers of God's word. He hosts an excellent and very successful podcast, the Expositors Collective podcast, and he is a friend and colleague and someone I always look forward to speaking to. On this episode, we talk about the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation chapters two and three, and what these letters tell us about Christ's concern for the local church and how that should shape the way that we think about doctrine and practice in the local church today. I hope you'll enjoy this episode. Welcome to Theology for the People. This is Nick Cady, and I'm joined today by my friend and colleague, the most productive man in Cork, Ireland, <laughs> Mike Neglia. Hey, Mike. Thanks for being Nick, on the show. A real pleasure, a real treat. Thanks for having me on. Mike, you know, it used to be that whenever I needed somebody I could count on to like record an episode, I would think Mike Neglia is my man. But that hasn't been the case lately. I think you've been being very productive over in Ireland. And this is like our, our third time trying to record this episode. Yes, so it finally, is. It's happening. Yeah. Last time, yeah, I had some weird like middle age, just like back spasm and went home and laid on the bed and canceled on you. But this time, Colorado's most productive man is putting me to shame because you are in a rough place right now. But here you are anyway. Hey, we're going to talk about how Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. But Nick, where are you seated right now? And how are you doing? I'm seated in my bedroom right now. I have brought my podcasting setup home. I just had surgery. My second surgery is a reconstructive surgery on my ankle. I had it on Tuesday. Today we're recording is Thursday. And yeah, I'm seated with my leg elevated, just trying to manage pain right now. But I'm glad that, you know, with technology, we can still do things like this and, you know, still have these conversations and be productive. So... Yeah. Well, yeah, I was praying for you as the surgery was happening. Glad that you're out of it. And, you know, the, the fellow listeners, as I'm a listener, the listeners to the podcast, we we wish you well. And thanks for keeping us in the loop. Thanks, Mike. Yeah. Hey, speaking of middle age, I just read this thing the other day that they said that middle age starts at 35, which I, I don't know. I always figured middle aged people were older than me. Well, I mean... It, are people dying at 70 these days? I don't know. I guess it depends where you live. I think <laughs> I think in some places, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, I guess it's just when the when the metabolism slows down and when you start to think about your own mortality more. I don't know. Anyway, it's Maybe. it's arrived. That's where I'm at right now. Okay. Well, cool. Hey, today we're hey, here to talk about You know about... who's never died? You know who died once and will live forever? The Lord Jesus Christ. Let's talk Amen. about him. <laughs> Let's talk about him. <laughs> All right. So 
Earlier this year with Shane England, we talked about the dating of Revelation. But with you, yeah, I want to talk about the seven letters to the seven churches and where is Jesus right now? What is he doing? What do the letters teach us? So I know that you recently taught on this in your church. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah. Yeah. First, okay. Two things. Number one, I introduced you to Shane England. And now all of a sudden I see you guys like hanging out and spending more time together. And it's like, you know, when you introduce your friends and like, oh, this is good. And then they spend, they hang out with each other more than you. You're like, wait, wait. So I'm, it's nice to see you guys spending so much time recording so much podcast together, but don't you ever forget who made that happen. Okay. Well, I also need to give a shout out to my friend, Nate Medlong, because Nate had been telling me about Shane for years prior to the introduction. And yeah, you know, I guess we were like friends in law, if you're familiar with that term. <laughs> yeah, and, now, yeah. and now we've actually turned the corner. So yeah, yeah, he's a, he's a great, great man. So yes, A, I take I, I thought I took credit for that introduction. And now it turns out I was just a, a, a parallel track in that introduction. And secondly, when it came to teaching this section to the church that I pastor, Calvary Cork, myself and the elders at the end of 2022, we just kind of laid out kind of a church like vision statement for 2023. And it was that by God's grace, Calvary Cork will be a healthy church home that creates life-giving environments for spiritual growth and meaningful connection. And then we kind of planned out our, our preaching series according to that. And so the first half of the year, we wanted to be focusing on what is a healthy church? What does a healthy church look like? And, and so it was Revelation 2 and 3, where we have Jesus's opinion on what a healthy and unhealthy church looks like. And then we're in the book of 1 Corinthians. We're in chapter 8 now. So we're literally halfway through that, looking at what Paul says about church health and church unhealth. And then we'll move into spiritual growth over the summer. How does someone grow as a Christian? And then end the year with some series on relationships and meaningful connections. So we picked it not because we're like eschatology obsessed or any of that. It was like, okay, we want to find sections of God's word that talk about the importance of healthy church congregations. And that's what caused this to, to rise up. And Nick, when I finished it, after finishing the seventh letter at the end of chapter three, people came up to me and they were really eager to continue through it. Um, but we're going to do four next week, right? And I had to say no. But what I'm planning on doing now is next year in January, maybe do chapter four and five, those kind of like visions of the throne room mm -hmm. with the, the lamb that was slain, seated upon the throne and opening the scrolls. And then have that be kind of like the, the January series. And then the year after that, then maybe come back and then do kind of the, the judgment sequences throughout. So I am just like slowly dipping my toes into Revelation bit by bit. So I'd love to talk with you about chapters one to three, but the rest yeah. of it, man, I don't know much about it yet. <laughs> I'll tell you when I get there, I'll figure it out as, as I go. Yeah, so that's we kind did of... a fun thing with our church with it, where we did like a class and it was like an eight week class through just looking at eschatology, giving people a chance to ask questions. I really enjoyed that format, but where we didn't spend a lot of time, honestly, is in chapters one through three. Oh, so really? I'm excited to talk about it with you. Oh, we complete each other. You are the, the yin to my yang, the, <laughs> the abbot to my Costello. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. 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 Well, and it's, it's great. I found, yeah. So what do you want to talk about? 
Well, okay, let's start with this. What is the purpose and the significance of the seven letters? Hmm. Okay, well, you're probably aware, the listeners are aware, there's a lot of different views on Revelation. It is a book that has, you know, inspired dozens of takes and perspectives on it. And so I, I do want to be respectful to, to other, other views. But yeah, I, I look at this as actual letters to actual churches. Many people point out that the, the seven churches follow a, a postal route, geographical circuit, that the letters could be, the letter could be read at each of those seven congregations. I believe that it's the words of the risen Christ to actual living Christians alive at the time of writing, and he addresses issues in their church. And I think the rest of the passage, the rest of the, the book of Revelation, describes future events, but that are relevant to these congregations at the time. That they do have, although they are future, I believe, they do have like deep and rich meanings and can be a source of encouragement for the struggling churches that originally received it. Ephesus, Philadelphia, Smyrna, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, with having seven letters written to seven churches, which are not our churches, then how do you go about reading those letters in a way that applies to today? Yeah, I mean, the same way that I'm doing it in Corinthians now, same way that you've done it with the letters to Timothy, that's not to you, but it's it's for you, it's relevant to you. And so there's the, you know, we'd call this hermeneutics, understanding what the passage meant in its original context, then bridging the gaps, what is different about that context, and how is it different to ours? What is it that's the same? And then we highlight that with a fresh application. So I, I find Revelation 2 and 3 to be, again, I'm limited, but that's the easiest to understand and apply because those are to congregations just like ours. We don't have to spend a lot of time talking about beasts coming out of the water, what that symbolizes, what that could be, and then how does that apply to us? Whereas talking about sexual immorality amongst the people of God, that's sadly directly relevant to churches like ours and congregations like ours, because these are issues then and they're issues now. So we don't have to do much of the symbol interpretation for chapters two and three. Much of it, much of it is quite quite plain and straightforward. Not all, but much. Mm -hmm. And because they are churches extant or living congregations in real cities, there are plenty of local allusions that are written into these letters. So there's references to events, geography, water temperature that is relevant to those unique cities. And so it's kind of a, an Easter egg, as it were, it's, it's references that, that would have made sense. It would have been really on the nose to those congregations. And I think it's the interpreter's job, the, the preacher's job, to understand those, to explain those, maybe to not make too big of a deal out of them, but to, to show people that this would have made sense to them then, and let's make it sense to us now. Yeah. And I, I want to talk about that actually more. So let's circle back to that and talk about the water temperature one specifically. <laughs> but let me just ask you some more general questions like, what do you think we can gain insight into from the way that Jesus addresses each of these seven churches differently? Okay. Well, I suppose 
we speak about the local and the universal church. And so there's this like general uh, across the whole surface of the earth, like Christ has this, this heart of love and attentiveness towards his people. What is interesting and what's unique and what I love seeing again and again and again in chapters two and three is there also is like a specificity to it. Here's, here's kind of what we, what we tend to think of. We tend to think of, you know, Jesus loves the whole world and then Jesus loves me. He cares about all the Christians everywhere. And then he cares about me and my issue about paying the mortgage this month and my relationship with my spouse. There's this in-between layer that I think is really highlighted again and again and again, that God sees us, Christ sees us as part of church families. And he cares about the health of those church families. And at least for, for these, he cares so much that he's going to like step down from heaven to address some issues that are taking place in those churches because he cares about their flourishing, both for the city that they live in and also for the members within the church. So he cares about the world. He cares about, you know, Bobby and Susie and, and Mike and Nick. And then he also cares about Whitefield's church and he cares about Calvary Cork. And he wants to see healthy churches. And he is willing to make people a little bit uncomfortable by highlighting issues of unhealth in churches so that these communities can be healthy. Yeah, I mean, this really highlights the importance of the local church and, and Christ's care and concern for it. You know, I've noticed this. I'm sure you probably have too. There can be, I've seen like a I guess like a, a lack of appreciation for the local church, a lack of love for the church, you know, the kind of idea that I've got Jesus, but I don't need the church. And I, I think that this section really doesn't allow for that. I mean, if you look at just the the history of the church, right, that Jesus bursts the church throughout the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit spurs on the creation of new churches, adds to the church, the church multiplies, etc. And then in Revelation, like you said, he comes down from heaven to speak to churches. Yeah, I guess, can you just give me your take on that? Like, number one, why do you think that some people undervalue the local church? And number two, like, what can we do to think more biblically about that? Well, I have a, maybe a shallow answer first. And maybe as I say that, I'll think of a better one. But I think, I think we just lived through 2020, 2021, a little bit of 2022 of isolation of, you know, being, being intentionally separated from our church communities. And, you know, in, in Europe, it went on for a lot longer, different parts, even different states in the U.S. had different takes on lockdowns and different churches. But in, in Ireland, especially, it was just like, you just, you just don't go. And I think that it has shown people, number one, the vitality of a personal relationship with Jesus, that you cannot just depend on your preacher and your worship leaders to kind of like usher you into his presence and also spoon feed you truth. So that's kind of, a, that's, a, that's a good thing. But then it also showed some people like, oh, well, I'm, I'm allegedly fine on my own and I don't really need to come back or I'll come back a whole lot less. I've, observed this in my context. And from what I've reading, this is kind of quite common. People that came every week up in, in 2019 are now coming two or three times, once or twice a month. 
and some people have just dropped off while claiming to not leave the faith. They're not saying they've, they've left the faith, but just church is something that they've learned isn't actually that important. And so they, they don't come. Now, that's a recent thing. That's just two or three years old phenomenon. But that certainly has been a practice and a pattern and an impulse for, for years. I don't know why. Again, I'm only thinking of the most recent event. Nick, what do you think? Yeah, I think it varies greatly by culture and like what is your cultural expectation for the purpose of the church. But again, I think that rather than having a culturally shaped expectation, we should probably have a biblically shaped one, which is something I'm always trying to drill into our our church. You know, in the U.S. here, we had a really different thing with the pandemic where, of course, it was, especially in the American West, where it was a, a matter of protest, in a sense, to go to the church when, you know, when it was not allowed, when there were restrictions and, and lockdowns in order. And I found that to be a pretty interesting experience, right? That we had certain people who came during that time who then, now that it's no longer such an act of protest, their church attendance has waned, which I, I find that to be really interesting dynamic there. I, I wrote a paper a while back. I did it for a conference, actually, as a teaching that I then turned into a little paper. Um, I should probably share it more widely, but it was this concept, and I got it a little bit from Scott McKnight. He had written something on it, but he had said that the way that particularly Americans think about church is largely shaped by two people. And one of them was Henry David Thoreau, kind of march to the beat of your own drum type thing, personal religion. And the other one was the founder of the state of Rhode Island, who essentially founded the state because he left his church congregation and then he left a series of churches. And it just kind of like ingrained this mentality into Americans that if you don't like your local church, then rather than trying to reform it, you should just abandon it. And I found that these to be pretty insightful ideas. I think that, you know, culture plays a lot into it as far as how people think about it. But again, we need to be thinking biblically. So, sure. Mike, how should we think about the local church and its importance based especially here on Revelation yeah. 2 and 3? Yeah. Well, if we want to think, think biblically, we can, again, we can speak, we could speak in these biblical generalities of Christ loved the church and he gave himself for her. And when I say general, I don't mean that that's irrelevant, but we do have like a deep self-sacrificial love of Christ that he willingly and gladly gave his life for the betterment of the church. And again, that feels kind of general and it feels kind of universal because it is. It was a universal church that he gave his life for. But then as we see across the New Testament, as this is developed, we see that, you know, local churches are incredibly important. What Revelation 2 and 3 just kind of shows is that it's it's not just these general things that that he cares about. It's not just a generic collection of, of Christians. It's it's the people in Pergamum, the, the people that, that gather together and they're called out. They're the ecclesia called out of Pergamum, gathered together around the word and sacraments, gathered together in this living Christian community, and they they matter and their purity matters and their tenacity and their steadfastness, it, it matters. And as I said earlier, Jesus steps down from heaven to encourage them and to tell them not to give up and to, although, you know, things are very challenging for them, don't give up. 
And, and so the, the goal isn't for them to be a bunch of faithful individuals, but for this, this embassy of the kingdom of heaven gathered together in you know, ancient Turkey in the city of Pergamum, they need to be there and they need to be the strongest and healthiest that they can be for their good and also for, for Pergamum's good. You know, I mentioned, I highlighted Pergamum. That's one of two, you know, positive letters or, or exclusively positive letters. But it, most people are familiar with kind of the corrections or the rebukes or the reproofs that Christ gives. And what, what I've come to believe is that the reason why Jesus is so strong in his wording, let's say to the Ephesian church, you know, about how like, if you don't get the sorted guys, like I'm going to shut you down. I'm going to extinguish your, your lamp. I'm going to like remove you as, as a, a collection of, of, of Christians. Like not that he's going to unsave them, but that their church will, will no longer have this ongoing presence in the city. I think it's because a, it's a correction against their lovelessness, but also it's almost like an act of, of love to the city of Ephesus. It's like, we're familiar with the idea of like inoculation or or vaccination. It's when you get just a little bit of something into your bloodstream and then your body learns how to combat it. I think that a a loveless version of Christianity, a diluted version of Christianity, a compromised version of Christianity, that actually is it's like the it's like an anti-missionary work. When a a bad church is in a city, it's actually doing more harm than good. And it's inoculating all those who come in contact with it against the, the good and the saving message of Jesus Christ, showing that if you believe this, it won't change your life at all. If you believe this, it won't make you a loving person. If you believe this, you are just the same as everybody else. And that inoculating work is counter-evangelistic. And so Jesus threatens to come and to shut these churches down because not he's just a big bully, but because he loves these cities and wants to make sure that they get a chance to hear the real undiluted gospel. Wow. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. I'd never thought about that. Oh, but I think about I can, that all the time. <laughs> I can totally, totally relate to it for sure. Yeah. What are some of the common themes and messages that are found in the letters? You mentioned that some of the letters are praising, some are correcting, but what are some of the common themes that run throughout all of them? Common theme is you're in sin and you need to repent. And that made for kind of a, yeah, a bit of a grueling two months in, in Calvary Cork. So much so that one, one Sunday, we just kind of inserted a, a testimony Sunday in there. We just had different members of the church talk about how they became Christians. And, and it was kind of like a, a much needed reprieve that, that was there. Because, again, it's, just, it's, a, it's a pretty somber tone. There's a seriousness about Jesus and we want to match his tone and we don't want to dilute what he's saying. But so, yeah, there's a pretty common theme. There are seven letters to seven churches and seven times Jesus tells them to repent. It's not evenly spread. Five of them are told to repent. Of those five, two are told to repent twice. And then there's two churches that receive a whole rebukeless letter from our Lord, Pergamum and Philadelphia. Those are the ones. Other themes that come through is, is actually like the value of orthodoxy and doctrinal purity that, that comes through. There's some false teachings that have spread across different churches. They're kind of given these 
code names or we don't have all the details, but it's like the L's teaching, the Nicolaitans teachings, and they seem to have infiltrated a few of these Christian communities. And we're kind of left to speculate a little bit about what the content of those those teachings were. But we know that Jesus hated it. He hates the deeds of the Nicolaitans. And it's strange. I, I Oh, hang on. Did I say Pergamum didn't have a rebuke? Yeah. I was wrong. It's Smyrna. Sorry. Smyrna. Okay. Smyrna was the one that didn't get the rebuke. But I'd say Pergamum, which was a persecuted church, Pergamum that was experiencing, you know, violence and threats of more violence, that Jesus is like, hey, I see that people are against you. I see there's violence coming your way. But listen, lads, you got to get rid of this teaching of the Nicolaitans. I hate that. Get it out. So it's a church that is experiencing persecution even. It's a church that is like literally, it's a marginalized people group. Like they are a a group that experiencing marginalization. And Jesus is like, hey, listen, my heart goes out to you. I love you. But like, you got to get this doctrine out of there, which that's so counter to how things work in 2023. If someone's going through a hard time, we'll kind of dance all over the place to make sure that we're not making things worse for them by telling them that they're incorrect in their theology. Our Lord and Savior is like, I'm so sorry that things are hard for you. You need to repent of the doctrine of the Nicolaitans because I hate that stuff. So those are some themes, some themes that, yeah, Jesus cares about orthodoxy a lot. And if we have a version of Jesus in our head that doesn't care that much, then we need to, I guess, reassess. He does not turn on people. He does not reject people, but he does address lack of orthodoxy as something that is concerning him. Yeah, that's really good. You know, Mike, I know that you do a lot of research like into church fathers and stuff. I mean, did the church fathers have to say anything, have anything to say rather about the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, what they thought that that might be? Yeah, great question. Well, what seems like the earliest, what, what a lot of early writers, they, they, they found a guy, and you're not going to like this, Nick. They found a guy in Acts chapter 7, one of the early kind of proto-deacons uh, named Nicholas. And they say that Nicholas must have went rogue, and then this group is named after, after him. What I what I what, what most contemporary writers say they do some kind of etymological work and uh, they they kind of break down the word Nicolaitan Nika which means victory or conqueror and laity which means the people that it's like a Nicolaitan and many people would say oh maybe this is some kind of like super hierarchical organization of like the clergy that is Nika over the laity that they're above the people and. That's that's interesting. And, you know, I despise that type of intense hierarchy and I think it's done a lot of damage in Ireland and elsewhere. So, like, I'm empathetic to that. But the early church fathers weren't doing that. They were saying, oh, yeah, this is probably Nicholas gone rogue. Okay. And again, we don't always have to we don't always have to defer to the, the, the church fathers, but I think we'd be foolish to ignore them in that. Sure. Sure. Yeah, they were close enough to it that they might have had some some knowledge that maybe we don't nowadays. Yeah, but no, but nobody claims again from from my from my reading on that, if I can recall it, nobody claims that it was like 
hey, listen, I met Nicholas before. <laughs> you know, Nicholas was saying this and this. They're, they're not even saying, they're not claiming to know even what it was, but they're just laying it at the feet of this guy and right. say that. So, Well, okay. So, Mike, walk us through the letters. And I would be curious to know if there are any ways in which in your study you came across things that maybe people sometimes misread or commonly misinterpret when they read the seven letters. Yeah, Ephesus is the church that, you know, famously had lost or left their first love. And they were a church. And I, man, Nick, we know more about the church of Ephesus than we do about any other church in the whole, yeah. in the whole New Testament. Like from its like conception and birth in Acts chapter 18 and 19 up until like the, the way that Paul like wrote them six whole chapters in the letter and then when he visited them again in Acts chapter 20, we know about their church government structure. And then we even have this final message from Jesus straight to them. So I think- well, And let's oh, remember First and Second Timothy. Timothy, of course. Yeah. 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 So we, yeah, we know so much about them and like everything seems to, to be going great for them, like up until, up until the very end. And Jesus is like, listen, you're doing a lot of good stuff, but you've lost your, your love for me. So I titled that sermon, Warm Hands, Cold Hearts, because they're doing a lot of activity, but their heart is, is far, is far from him. Yeah. And then there was the church in Smyrna, the church of the persevering persecuted. They were the, the first unrebuked church in there. Smyrna is, yeah, present day Izmir in Turkey. A couple of years ago, I got a chance to, to visit some church planting friends there in Izmir. It was a real honor to to speak at a church in Izmir. And I, yeah, my heart does does go out for them. They were persecuted in the days of Revelation. They're experiencing challenges and hardships even, even today. But Jesus tells them to be faithful unto death and I will give you the, the crown of life. He encourages them towards, towards faithfulness and persevering. Pergamum, that was the one that I was talking about earlier on. They're, they're a marginalized people group. And Jesus, in empathy, cares for them, but loves them enough to tell them they got to get their, their doctrine straight because orthodoxy actually matters. Thyatira is where there's that Jezebel that's there. Okay, well, I didn't preach this one, so... <laughs> yeah, just like this this notion and, you know, we have... Okay, we got an elder at our church that that came from from a, a Pentecostal background, and and sometimes he offers like such different ways of of looking at things, and we're we're really enriched by this. And you know, he he in our kind of conversations, he's talked about kind of like a like a Jezebel spirit, and I'm like, listen, bud, we don't do spirits. We're Calvary Chapel. This is not something that we're into. And whilst I'm not convinced, you know, but he is kind of highlighting how there is this, you know, this rebellious presence, this usurping presence that is named after a real evil queen in the days of old and then is present there in the end of, well, there at the end of the first century. Our Pentecostal brothers and sisters, they would look at this as kind of evidence of like, Oh, there's this conniving fallen presence that is enlivening or 
invigorating kind of this type of immoral behavior. I'm, I'm, I'm totally in the realm of speculation right now, and I'm not even totally convinced. What do you think? You've got a pondering look on your face. So this is in, in Revelation 2, verse 20. He says, I have this against you to the church in Thyatira, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and eat food sacrificed to idols. Yeah, I think the other the other way I've heard this explained is that Jezebel was, you know, yes, it is using a code word mm-hmm. to but it, but it's referring to an actual woman who was teaching, you know, false doctrine spreading it in that church in Thyatira. What do you think about that interpretation? Yeah, okay, that too. <laughs> Like I said, I am not even super, this is this is not something that we taught from the pulpit. This was just an interesting, I guess, kind of seeing how our theological backgrounds really do come forward. And as I said earlier, like orthodoxy matters a whole lot. And I think this is a, a matter of orthodoxy versus heterodoxy. It's just like, well, from this person's tradition, this is just a different like, I don't know, theological trajectory, maybe one that is more open to like spirits or spiritual. Because earlier in chapter two with the church in Pergamum, there's the reference to Balaam, another Old Testament character. And it's talking about like, you know, holding on to his teaching, which is continuing through. Now, we could look at that as just like a the passed on traditions from one generation to the next or some sort of error that has been perpetuated from generation to generation. And our our brothers and sisters from maybe a different perspective, just look at that as like, okay, there's this continuity. There's, there's principalities and there's powers and there's people that have constantly come against the people of God. Balaam came against God's people in the Old Testament. Jezebel came through, came against God's people in the Old Testament, trying to poison from, from within. And maybe it's not just these people, but maybe there's powers and there's fallen angels that are at work against the church. Now, again, no matter if it's overtly demonic or if it's just plain old, just false teachers doing damage, or even to be to put it the most generous way possible, maybe just well-intentioned people who are in error, I guess the result is the same. It's causing damage to the, the church of God which jumping back to the big idea of this conversation, Jesus cares about a lot. And Jesus loves the church in general and loves churches specifically. Yeah. And then there's, there's Sardis, which is a church that is kind of threatened to, to, to die, uh, called it the church of the dying and the declining. There's Philadelphia, the church of the persevering persecuted, I put it. And then Laodicea, the the sickening saints the 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 compromised church that was almost vomit inducing well tell me a little bit about laodicea because that's the one where you had mentioned that there was this thing about water and being lukewarm so tell us a little bit about that yeah well that's one of those things i remember hearing that like at youth group again half of 20 years ago maybe actually longer than that and this was you know jesus speaks to them and says i wish that you were hot or cold but because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Verse 16 there. Vomit is the the literal word there. And yeah, this is not only just provocative language for, for its own sake, but Jesus is, you know, most likely making a, a local allusion to the water that exists there. Laodicea was a fantastically 
wealthy place. Everything was going great for them. I, it seemed like what historians talk about, the one thing that wasn't going for them is, is their water supply. It had kind of a, they had to import water from elsewhere, which made them actually quite, quite vulnerable because uh, other enemies could like lay siege against them, but because their water supply was, was pumped in. And so to one side, maybe the east, maybe the west, there was like these bubbling hot springs. And then on the other side of them was like these refreshing, cool waters. But by the time it journeyed, made the journey down to Laodicea, the healing powers of the warm water and the refreshing powers of the cold water was gone. And it was just this taste, this, this untasty, unrefreshing water. And Christ is, is, referencing, is referencing that. It's a, you know, commonly, I, I, I don't think that's particularly an obscure fact. Do you, Nick? Is this no, pretty well No, I, I, I've heard that, yeah. But I think the way that people interpret it sometimes doesn't make sense, right? They'll say, well, this is a verse that says, don't be lukewarm, don't be nominal in your following of Jesus, because he would prefer that you were either cold, which is sometimes interpreted as like that you not even love Jesus at all, like yeah. you just go full bore into the world, or that you be on fire. But I've heard that challenged. Yeah. I don't think Jesus is saying here, yeah, I wish that you hated me. I wish that you were opposed to me. Or I wish that you were worse. I don't think that's what he's saying. Yeah. It's like, it's that there's got to be some distinctiveness. There needs to be some, some tenacity or some punch to you, you know, refreshing cold brew or, you know, piping hot drip coffee, but not this in the middle, you know, lukewarmness. Yeah. And so at the end of the letters there in chapter three, Jesus says, to the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. So Jesus is writing this from that perspective, seated at the right hand of the father. And so, Mike, what is your understanding? What does it mean to be that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the father? What is he doing yeah. currently? Yeah, that's that's where he's at. I mean, now, please don't take this, don't take this out of the right context, but it's, it's a little bit metaphorical because in chapter one, it says that he is standing between the, the candlesticks, you know, so is, is he standing whilst being seated? I think this is kind of some of these this imagery issues of, of, of Revelation. Sometimes we take each one as, as it is. But I think the big picture, what it means that he is seated at the right hand of the Father is that his period of humiliation has come to an end. His suffering, both the lifetime of suffering that led up to the cross and particularly the event of the death by crucifixion, it's, it's over. The suffering servant has suffered, and now he is the ruling sovereign. And the cross is not the end of the story. And even the resurrection isn't the end of the story. It's, it's his ascension, and it's his enthronement. And, and there, he, as resurrected God-man, like, rules the heavens and the earth and also represents us perfectly before the father so he's he's seated there because the the work is completed there is more to come he will unseat himself not in the sense of leaving that authority but in coming down here once again we do look forward to his return and renewing all things but presently he is ruling and reigning, seated at the right hand of, of God, even as the ancient creeds 
have have said it. That's where he is right now, and that's that's what it means. Some smarter people than I would refer to this as inaugurated eschatology, that the kingdom is here, already here in reality, but it's not present in power. So it's the already, not yet kingdom that's here. It's begun, but it's not completed. Yeah, and, the, and inaugurate eschatology, they would also say that like Jesus has inaugurated his reign as king, so he's currently king, and his reign will one day come to this earth when he returns. And so, but Mike, okay, more than just being a matter of fact, like this is where Jesus is at at the moment, for you personally, like what does that knowledge do for you? Okay, well, hey, Nick, have you ever seen a coronation? I have just recently, yeah. Me, me too. Me too. I, I, I watched it, and you know, I have as as an Irish citizen, I have a complicated relationship with the the monarchy, and you know, I am not a royalist. I, I don't believe that a a monarchy is a valid form of of government in this day and age. But that's apart from all of that. Wasn't it a cool ceremony? Oh, it is super cool. Yeah, my wife was really into it. Yeah. Okay, yeah, my wife is 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 into it too. But I was just there as like like a a, a theologian or or as a Christian. And I'm just like, this is amazing. I don't believe in this nonsense, but I love so much of the the significance of of these of these rituals. So, speaking of already not yet, or speaking of tension, I was I was watching that as a very conflicted person. But somebody, I forget who, somebody said that, like, I think the whole Gospel of Matthew is essentially a long coronation story, that it's all leading up to the, the coronation of King Jesus at the end with, the, with his resurrection, or perhaps actually probably Luke, with, with him leading up to his resurrection and then his ascension, that it's building towards him being crowned as king. So... Personally, I, I look to this and think, you know, there is not a, a more severe wrong that ever happened than the death of Jesus upon the cross. And there is no deeper and richer vindication of that than his present exalted state. Philippians chapter two talks about that. And, and I look at that as like, it's the ultimate wrong that has been righted. And it is a, a foreshadow of the, the writing of all wrongs. And it's the beginning of something something beautiful that that Christ, our forebearer, has has gone ahead of us and and he is there and that is going to invade he- both heaven and earth one day. So I look at that as on the one hand, hey, I'm glad for Jesus. I love that guy. I love Jesus so much and I'm glad that he is exalted now. And then also it's like, and that guy loves me and he is going to make sure that he's not just enjoying the vindication for himself, but that it's going to come down, invade, and fill, and renew the earth. Habakkuk 2.4, the knowledge of the glory of God is going to cover the earth as waters cover the sea, and the, the wrongs that have been done be, be made right. That's, that's one of a couple different reasons why, why I love the fact that Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. Yeah, that's really good. So the ruling and reigning Christ who is going to bring his kingdom to the earth. He cares about local churches like Calvary Cork and like Whitefields Community Church and wherever else our listeners might attend. And what do you think is the practical implication, just very briefly, like 
if if Christ cares this much for the church, how ought we to relate to our church? Well, it means that we should come more than once a month. <laughs> it means that it should be something that we realize that our attendance and our participation in a local congregation is something that's actually very valuable. And there are so many things that we do that will have very limited, very limited staying power. But I, I do believe that by investing into church health, church stability, it's contributing to the health of an organism or, or a body that, that really does matter. So seeing Christ's attentiveness to churches, seeing his concern about their health or lack of health, because I mean, statistically, healthy churches seem to be kind of rare if we look at these two chapters. Mm -hmm. Since they're rare, and since Jesus notices them and commends them when they get it right, then let's let's put effort into doing the sort of things that Christ put effort into and also that he commends. So healthy churches are valuable to Jesus, and so it should be valuable to us. That's really good. Well, Mike, thank you for being on today. Where, where can people connect with some of the other things that you're doing? Tell us about your other podcast that you do and some of the events you're involved in. Also, where, where can people hear your, your messages preached? Okay. I am, yeah, I get to preach almost every week at Calvary Corp. We are rebuilding our website right now, but on youtube.com slash Calvary Cork, you can find videos of those sermons for the time being. I also get to lead an initiative with Calvary Global Network called Expositors Collective. And Nick, you're there as well. And I have a podcast talking to preachers about sermon preparation and delivery. I, I want to highlight maybe one interview that I did. I spoke with Dr. Jeffrey Wyma about his excellent book called The Sermons to the Seven Churches of Revelation. I read a lot of books. This was my favorite. And it's kind of cool. Maybe you know this, Nick. Having a podcast, all of a sudden you get to be like, I, I just I read the book or I was reading it. I was loving it. And then I looked in the back and I said, oh yeah, Baker Academic. I think I know somebody at Baker Academic. And then shot an email and said, I want to talk to this guy. And I got a chance to like talk to a scholar about something that he cares a lot about and then ask him the kind of questions that I care about. And then other people get to listen to the podcast and benefit from it. So for a, a better more informed look at these, I'd say this is the book to get and could put a link in the show notes to this specific episode. And I'll be at the CGN International Conference in June. And I look forward to right. You're I really speaker. hope to see you there, June. Yeah, they're letting yeah. me talk. So I get to talk on Tuesday night about proclaiming the gospel of grace. I can't wait. I plan to be there. Good. Hope our listeners will too. Yeah. So. How can they register? Calvaryglobalnetwork.com. All the information for the conference there. Yeah. I wish you all the best with your recovery and thanks for letting me talk. Thanks for being on, Mike. Thanks for listening to this episode of Theology for the People. If there's ever a topic you'd like to learn more about, there is a section on my website where you can submit questions and suggest topics for me to cover. That can be found at nickkady.org. That's N-I-C-K-C-A-D-Y dot O-R-G. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast if you haven't done so yet. That way, when new episodes are released, they will be delivered right to your podcast app. And if this episode was helpful, please share it with others. If you'd like to support the podcast, please leave a written review on the Apple Podcast app or on Spotify. 
That really helps boost the show in their ratings and algorithms. So if you do that, I would greatly appreciate it. Thanks for listening. And until next time, God bless you.